Welcome to Global Dispatches, a world affairs podcast. I am your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And on this show, you will find in-depth conversations about topical issues in global affairs, often featuring stories that don't make the headlines, but probably should. I also have in-depth conversations with newsmakers or otherwise interesting people in foreign affairs who discuss their lives and careers, often with digressions about the big foreign policy events in which their life and career intersected. Global Dispatches is produced independently, and if you want to support the show, you can do so by telling your fellow international affairs nerds about it. My guest today, Dr. Thomas Frieden, led the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, for the entirety of the Obama administration from 2009 to 2017. He now has a new role as president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, an initiative of vital strategies. And in this role, he has an audacious goal to save 100 million lives. To that end, his main focus is on fighting cardiovascular disease in the developing world and shoring up our global defenses against pandemics. And he has some major backers in this cause, including the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Bloomberg Philanthropies. In our conversation, Dr. Frieden and I discuss these two issues in depth, cardiovascular disease in the developing world and pandemics, and why, of all the issues in global health, he chose to focus on these two. I must say, I was very glad to catch up with Dr. Frieden when I saw the press release in September 2017 announcing the start of this new organization, Resolve to Save Lives, to be headed by Dr. Frieden and backed by these major philanthropies. I was intensely curious to learn more and have the conversation you are about to hear. Before we start this episode, I want to both highlight and thank one of the show's sponsors, which is Northwestern University's Master of Science in Global Health program. This is an online program, and you know, I often think to myself, if I had to do it all over again, I would get a degree in global health. It is such an interesting and rapidly evolving field, and also, not incidentally, uh, comparatively well-funded. If you're listening to this episode contemporaneously, then chances are you will hear after my spiel right now an ad for this Master's of Science in Global Health program. And I'd encourage you to click on the link on globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. Or you can also feel free to email me using the contact button on the website, and I'd be happy to put you in touch with the good people at Northwestern. All right, now here is my conversation with Dr. Thomas Frieden, President and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, an initiative of vital strategies. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I feel I've been very fortunate in the opportunities I've had at work with the people who I've worked for, with the people I've learned from and people I've worked with. 
it's given me the opportunity to have an overview of what are the issues that are not currently moving as quickly as they could and what could an outside group, a non-governmental organization do to accelerate those issues? And l using that as the basic framework, how can an effort outside of government make the biggest difference? Uh, we identified these two areas of preventing heart attacks and strokes and preventing epidemics. These are both areas where there are well-proven tools to make progress, but the world hasn't been making rapid, rapid progress. And we think it's possible to change that dynamic so that if we look back in five or 10 years, we'll see an inflection point around uh, 2017, 2018, when the world got together and figured out how to rapidly reduce the risk of heart attack, stroke, an epidemic. So let's talk about that a, a bit. Why is it that the world has been slow to take on issues related to cardiovascular disease? Hypertension has been called the silent killer. And uh, a few years ago, I, I wrote an article in a, in a medical or public health journal called Asleep at the Switch, that public health has been asleep at the switch from communicable diseases to non-communicable diseases. And we need to continue to address uh, infectious diseases, drug resistance, polio, we have to finish the job, measles, malaria, TB, uh, meningitis, HIV, malaria, all huge problems still that we need to continue to focus on. But at the same time, the world is changing. And most people in the world who die prematurely die from a cardiovascular disease or cancer now. And we need to do a much better job of preventing those diseases that can be prevented. We recognized with vaccines that it was unethical, that there would be a 10, 20, or 30-year delay between the introduction of a life-saving vaccine in the United States and the introduction of that same vaccine in Africa, Asia, Latin America. But somehow, we didn't, as a world, realize that we had done the same exact thing for something as simple as the treatment of high blood pressure. That that treatment has been standard and routine for 50 years in the OECD countries, and it is the exception rather than the rule in low and middle income countries. That's a tragedy because every day people are having heart attacks and strokes and going into kidney failure that could have been prevented, costing lives and money. So is one consequence of the fact that um, countries that used to be poor are now middle income and, and turning into, you know, even even higher income countries. Um, the fact that that more and more people in those countries with their greater wealth are spending more and more of that wealth on, you know, unhealthy foods and unhealthy habits that result in cardiovascular disease. There are a few things going on. Uh, the population is aging, so there are more older people. Uh, people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who are having heart attacks and strokes. Also, as you say, there are people uh, who are having less healthy lifestyles. They're less physically active. They're eating less healthy food. Some of the traditional foods may have been much healthier than what they're now consuming. Uh, but also, the great success of the world at reducing infectious diseases has now opened the way for cardiovascular disease to become the world's leading killer. 
So what does an intervention against cardiovascular disease look like in a, a place, I don't know, like say Indonesia, I'm, I'm sort of picking up like a, a large middle income country. We have a, a simple equation, 50 plus 30 plus zero equals 100. If globally we can increase blood pressure control, that's the adequate treatment of high blood pressure. So the blood pressure goes down to less than 140 over 90 from its current rate of about 14% to 50% from 1.4 to 5.0, if we can reduce sodium intake by 30% and eliminate artificial trans fat, so we get the zero grams of trans fat, we'll save 100 million lives over a 30-year period. In each country, each of those three interventions is very important. Um, it's, it's easy to get uh, focused on treatment of hypertension, uh, and that's an area that can save more lives than any other healthcare intervention. And yet it's not being well done in most countries around the world. But it's also important to focus on things like artificial trans fat and sodium, which can make a huge difference if we can uh, reduce or in the case of trans fat, eliminate exposure. So, so can you just give me an example of what... Um your work to those ends looks like on the ground in a country? I, I know your organization is new, but uh, can you perhaps preview some strategies? Your, what is unique about your uh, approach here? In the case of hypertension, we have worked with a few countries to help them select a single protocol. It's up to them what protocol to select, but we recommend that they choose one protocol that's dose and drug specific. So it says very specifically, if blood pressure is this, then add this drug at this dose. If it's not controlled within a month, add the following or increase to the following. That's very important. And we've helped uh, states and provinces select protocols so that they can implement a program as a mass treatment program that will benefit many people. Around the world, 1.4 billion people have hypertension, but only at most 200 million are on adequate treatment. So we've got to treat hundreds of millions of people. And the way to do that is with a standard protocol with what's called task sharing. So nurses and pharmacists and other health workers can uh, assist the patient to take medication. And we would say ideally in most situations in consultation with a clinician, uh, titrate medication doses as per a standard protocol and rigorously monitor how patients are doing so we can see uh, what's working and what's not and improve programs uh, that are not working as well as they'd like and uh, learn lessons from those that are working well. In addition, we would, we're working with countries to look at the sources of artificial trans fat. Trans fat is a, a toxic chemical that was added to the food supply with all good intention, but is the least healthy of all uh, fats. And accounts for an estimated half a million deaths a year globally. It can be eliminated from the food supply. And uh, by doing that, uh, we can prevent heart attacks without changing the taste or any other aspect of food. But countries may need to know how to do that from a regulatory standpoint. Uh, we will support testing of food products to see where the trans fat is and make sure that if the government passes a policy, it can be implemented. And uh, we also um, have supported the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S. to share their technology of measuring trans fat levels so that can be assessed 
in populations as well. So, so how uh, let's let's kind of break those down between treatment and and uh, prevention. So, on the treatment side of things, how do you scale up the availability of hypertension drugs, particularly in countries that have poor health systems that that can't afford this kind of thing? Interestingly, the drugs are not expensive. It needn't cost more than a few dollars a year to treat someone with state-of-the-art medication. But there hasn't been a habit of doing it. Our approach is help an area agree on one protocol, make sure the drugs are available, use the whole healthcare team, including uh, nurses, pharmacists, lay health workers, make things easy for patients so they're barrier-free, no costs, and establish a monitoring system so that we know rigorously how programs are doing, treating patients uh, and getting uh, progress, uh, getting the blood pressure down in communities. And on the um, prevention side, on, on say eliminating trans fats, is this just something that you have to work with, you know, the, the, the local authorities and, and legislators of countries in which you seek to, to intervene? It's usually a regulatory matter. And mm. uh, Denmark showed the way in 2003, 15 years ago, uh, showed that you could get rid of trans fat from food without changing the taste or increasing the price or decreasing the options. Uh, that's been slow to spread to low and middle income countries. An increasing number of countries in the richer areas of the world are banning trans fat. And that's exacerbating the inequalities globally where heart disease and stroke are actually increasing in numbers around the world. The rates are decreasing, but the population is aging and increasing. And what we're seeing is actually more and more people dying from cardiovascular disease in the lower and middle income countries. And this is one thing that we have to confront, not only because it's a loss of life often in middle age, but also because it's economically devastating for countries. For every person who dies from a heart attack, uh, two or three will have a non-fatal heart attack and may be disabled or require expensive health. Uh, so you've also uh, resolved to take on pandemics. Uh, what sort of contributions will your organization make to, you know, making the world a more prepared place to confront uh, emerging global pandemics? I would comment that these two, uh, these two areas are not unrelated. Uh, at the height of the Ebola outbreak, when I was director of CDC, uh, our team in Sierra Leone was working late one night and their driver was waiting for them in the parking lot. Uh, and as they got out of the office, their driver was having seizures and bleeding. And the assumption was he had Ebola. Tragically, he died. And when the uh, situation was analyzed, it became clear that he actually did not die from Ebola. He died from high blood pressure that was untreated and caused a massive stroke that killed him. That's a completely unnecessary death. It's an avoidable death. Uh, in the case of cardiovascular disease, we're going to prevent as many of those as possible. With regard to epidemics, there's an increasing recognition that we are all connected by the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat. Uh, a virus can travel from anywhere in the world to anywhere else in the world within a day or two. But although there's been a lot of progress identifying where the gaps are in preparedness, there's been very 
limited progress closing those gaps. And as a result, the world remains unprepared for a major pandemic or even an epidemic. And what we hope to do at Resolve to Save Lives is help countries become better prepared so that they can, uh, so that they can identify outbreaks when they first occur. They can uh, stop them promptly so that um, they uh, don't spread and spread from a cluster to an outbreak and outbreak to an epidemic. And uh, they prevent them wherever that's humanly possible. We're a relatively small organization in the space, but we have uh, deep technical expertise on our staff. And we're partnering with many other organizations, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, uh, as well as a global advocacy incubator, so that we can uh, accelerate progress, closing life-threatening preparedness gaps. How concerned are you that the CDC today is less prepared to confront a global pandemic than it was when you were uh, director of, of the CDC? We've seen some funding cuts. We've seen a budget request from the White House sharply reducing funding for CDC. That your, your immediate successor uh, resigned uh, in, in circumstances having to do with her trading some tobacco stocks. Your, uh, her successor you know, it does not have a background in in public health. He's more of a, of a researcher. How concerned are you that today the United States is not prepared to be the kind of leader it was while you were head of the CDC in confronting these issues? I have no reason to think that CDC is any less prepared today than it was uh, the day I left uh, office uh, last January. Uh, there are excellent health professionals throughout CDC. They do a great job. And fortunately, Congress fully supports CDC and did not... Uh, implement any of the administration's request for budget reductions at CDC. That's important because we need to protect CDC so CDC can protect the U.S. and the world. It has a very important role uh, as part of the global public health infrastructure in supporting countries, in supporting the World Health Organization, uh, as well as in providing state-of-the-art uh, um, support through laboratory expertise or deploying epidemiologists out to countries. Uh, but it is really important that the U.S. and other countries stay in the game. The risk is that as the Ebola epidemic fades in the rearview mirror, our focus on building the capacities to find, stop, and prevent health threats will be lost. And that's one reason that we've created Resolve to Save Lives, to continue to shine a spotlight and move forward. We're delighted, for example, in progress in recent months in Nigeria, where there's a new public health program that has been moving quickly, not only to confront the epidemics that they're facing, but also to take steps to make it less likely that they'll have future epidemics. They've just a $90 million World Bank funded project. Uh, we're delighted to see progress with this project. We were uh, privileged to provide project implementation support for them to get it off the ground uh, and think that uh, it's a, in a good place to implement effectively and quickly. Uh, that's an example of the kind of thing we'd like to do. We partner with others so that uh, we can be essentially a force multiplier and get the resources of others, and the technical, technical expertise and the focus 
all in the right place. And and it's, you know, Nigeria, I think, is a good example here because it did not suffer the huge consequence of some of its neighboring countries from uh, Ebola because it had sort of a, a pretty sophisticated disease surveillance program in place uh, regarding polio, right? So, so it sort of tapped into its polio eradication program in order to sort of monitor and, and implement solutions to uh, the, the Ebola outbreak. That's exactly right. Uh, I would say that the moment of maximum terror in the Ebola epidemic was when Ebola hit Lagos, Nigeria. And it really came within days of exploding and becoming completely out of control. And then the Nigerian government and Nigerian, Nigerian leaders put the polio team in charge of Ebola and uh, what's called the incident manager as well as the uh, epidemiologists and the field workers were all from the polio infrastructure. And they quickly put a very rigorous system in place to communicate effectively with communities, to establish infection control, to track hundreds of contacts with more than 18,000 home visits to track for fever. They identified 43 patients with fever. 19 of them have had Ebola. They rapidly isolated them and they stopped the outbreak. If that had not had have happened, I think it's highly likely that Ebola would have spread not just through Lagos, not just through Nigeria, but through many parts of Africa, not only for months, but for years, and would have killed people not just from Ebola, but because Ebola shuts healthcare systems down. That's an example of why it's so important to have these core capacities of laboratory networks so you can figure out what a problem is monitoring systems so you know when something unusual is happening, trained public health specialists who can investigate and stop outbreaks, and a rapid response system. So when you do have an outbreak, you can flex up and stop it before it spreads further. Can I ask, where were you when you learned that uh, Ebola had come to Lagos? Um, I was in our emergency operations center at CDC, and I literally put my hand on two of our best staff, and I said, get on a plane today for Lagos. And we redeployed all of our staff in Nigeria because we had a, an office there to Lagos to work on the outbreak. Uh, took a few days for the organization to become effective there, but it really was a, a, a remarkable response. Showed how effective the Nigerian, uh, the trained Nigerian staff were at using one set of skills and applying them to another problem. Can I ask, looking back at, at that experience, how important do you think American leadership was at, at, at that moment? And in general, American leadership in confronting these global pandemics. I don't think you know many listeners might, might realize this, but the CDC has offices like all around the world, um, or at least it, it, it did it at, at one point. And what... Um, like, what's the role? What's the unique sort of value add of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control in situations like this? The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has offices in more than 50 countries around the world. In the Ebola outbreak, we sent more than 1,400 staff into the three heavily affected countries and the neighboring countries. They spent more than 80,000 workdays in those countries. They went to essentially every community where Ebola was spreading and helped the local communities and local health professionals do what needed to be done to stop the epidemic. 
CDC is at its best when it trains others to set up systems. So one of the things it's done is to establish a field epidemiology training program uh, in more than 40 countries around the world. It also helps laboratories around the world test for deadly pathogens that might be spreading. Um, CDC, after Ebola, received significant resources to help other countries build their public health capacity. The argument I made in Congress was that we will be safer here if countries are stronger there. And that's a, a, an argument that is relevant for every country in the world. We all have an interest in every other country doing a good job preventing things from spreading or identifying them quickly if they are spreading so that we can have an early warning system. We're all connected and we all need to be part of the solution. The countries that are better off should be investing in global health security, the international health regulations, pandemic preparedness, whatever you want to call it. It comes down to the same thing. Do you have a tracking system that can find a problem promptly when it emerges? Do you have a um, laboratory system that can diagnose what that problem is? You have trained public health specialists who can stop it, and you have a rapid response system that can scale up uh, in an emergency. If you have those four things, you're going to be able to protect your own citizens as well as your neighboring countries and the world. If you don't, that is a weak link in the global chain that keeps us all safe and healthy. And and what um, will resolve bring to those aspects of, of the change, uh, of, of, the, of the chain that you just described? For example, uh, in Nigeria, we've worked with the World Bank and the government of Nigeria to um, bring forward a $90 million program that might have been stalled for a few years and now is getting underway. And that program is specifically strengthening the laboratory system at national and state levels, improving transport of specimens, training public health professionals, coming up with protocols to follow in an emergency uh, and using the excellent experience that Nigeria has had running emergency operations centers to make that more general for uh, uh, other health threats. Uh, these are all things that are crucially important, uh, but happen often behind the scenes. Um, and surveying the world right now, where do you see the most potentially sort of catastrophic uh, global health uh, pandemic or a pandemic threat coming from? Well, there are many different threats that we face, unfortunately. Um, the scenario that keeps all public health specialists most concerned is another influenza pandemic like the one exactly 100 years ago in 1918. Uh, that pandemic killed at least 50 million people around the world and reduced life expectancy in the U.S. and throughout the world. So flu can kill in a way that no other known pathogen can kill. But we know there will be another outbreak. We know there will be a new pathogen. We know there will be another health threat. We just don't know when it will come, where it will be from, or what specific organism it will be. That's why it's so important to have the systems in place around the world. But of course, it's not just epidemics that are threats. There are also threats through uh, the tobacco companies that are aggressively marketing cigarettes that will kill a billion people in this century unless urgent action is taken. And 
we have the threat of heart attack, stroke, and cancer, many of which can be prevented. But there's a lot more that uh, can be done to help people live healthier, more productive, uh, longer lives. Um, so I know uh, Resolve is a relatively new organization, just just a, a few months old. But what uh, can we look for in in the future? As um, you know, you, you sort of find your footing as as you start to kind of make your mark around the world. What what sort of projects can we look out for? In cardiovascular disease, we hope to see uh, uh, increases by many millions in the number of people receiving the best possible medicines and getting their blood pressure under control. We hope to see an increasing number of countries getting rid of the toxic chemical artificial trans fat in the food supply, preventing heart attacks and saving healthcare costs. We hope to learn more about how to reduce sodium consumption and see China and other countries that have high levels of sodium consumption reduce those levels. And in the epidemic area, we hope to see dozens of countries become better prepared to find, stop, and prevent outbreaks before they spread. Uh, well, uh, Dr. Frieden, thank you so much for your time. This was uh, very helpful, and it's just it's interesting to kind of catch up with you and, and see where your thinking is at and see the kind of projects that you are choosing to uh, to dive into. So thank you. Thank you very much, and all the best. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dr. Frieden. That was great. Uh, I've always wanted to uh, to talk to him. I've I've been in like press conferences with him before. I've been in some um, those kinds of uh, situations, but I never had the opportunity to kind of engage him one-on-one like this and was glad to be able to do so. I actually once saw him give a presentation on SARS, the SARS outbreak, years ago, and it was really frightening. Um, but also, you know, made me thankful that we have uh, a CDC and a World Health Organization to, to help take on these global challenges. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.